and welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or in one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners or in the Green Majority podcast. I am David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter. How are you doing? And Lauren Latour will be joining us as well as Emma McIntosh yes. later in this episode. It's a, it's a, whole, it's a whole crew. Mm-hmm. So briefly we'll intro, moving off of last week's themes. So I've always found it difficult to talk about climate change without sounding like an idiot because it's a global crisis that affects every aspect of our lives. So it always requires huge generalizations and no one can understand every part of it at once. It's an issue so overwhelming that it often leads us to big statements about topics we don't know much about or otherwise to throwing up our hands as if nothing can be done. Then it can seem strange that anyone should be talking about focusing on small ideas or concrete local actions when what's needed is structural change. So it's useful to think about how to bring about structural change through the minute but meaningful and manageable ways we actually impact things. We don't have to have a perfect picture of utopian life in order to live right. Especially since COVID has thrown the future up in the air, it can seem difficult to know how to make sense of everything. But it isn't necessary, even if we want deep change, to try to make complete sense of the biggest possible picture. As Rebecca L. Spang, an historian of the French Revolution, recently said in The Atlantic, quote, People sometimes imagine yesterday's revolutions as planned and carried out by self-conscious revolutionaries. But this has rarely, if ever, been the case. Instead, revolutions are periods in which social actors with different agendas become fused into a more or less stable constellation. The most timeless and emancipatory lesson of the French Revolution is that people make history. Likewise, the actions we take and the choices we make today will shape both what future we get and what we remember of the past. To continue on the theme we touched on last week about how it can be important to look at what's in front of us rather than getting lost in the specters of various geopolitical nightmares, I'd like to turn to a quote from William Blake in his long poem Jerusalem, in which he says, quote, He who would do good to another must do it in the minute particulars. General good is the plea of the scoundrel, hypocrite, and flatterer, for art and science cannot exist but in minutely organized particulars, and not in generalizing demonstrations of the rational power. The infinite alone resides in definite and determinate identity. Establishment of truth depends on destruction of falsehood continually. That was published five years after the end of the French Revolution. What it means in our context of COVID and climate change is that even as we recognize that migrant camps are being set up around the world to cloister refugees in the midst of a pandemic, which violent genocidal wannabe autocrats like Modi, Bolsonaro, and Trump are taking advantage of to increase their power, and that we're clinging to our death cult obsession with fossil fuels in a year that is already on pace to be the warmest on record, Everything each individual does every day is still what determines our path. The COVID crisis has underscored the obvious fact that individual lifestyle choices are not going to solve the greenhouse gas problem, since everyone's waiting it out inside yet our emissions have barely dropped, but it's also irrefutable, if platitudinous, that our systems depend on every little thing each one of us does every moment of our lives 
from our tiniest impressions and ideas to our grandest gestures of protest. There is no such thing as lost time or a meaningless moment, since every smallest thing that happens in our heads and in the world, which are not actually different places, plays a real part in human history. As Rebecca L. Spang concluded in her piece for The Atlantic in April, quote, In hindsight, a revolution may look like a single event, but they are never experienced that way. Instead, they are extended periods in which the routines of normal life are dislocated and existing rituals lose their meaning. They are deeply unsettling, but they are also periods of great creativity. To claim this moment as a revolution is to claim it for human action. And uh, we are now joined by the wonderful Lauren Latour from Ottawa. Hi there, fellas. How are you doing today? Yeah, pretty well. We're fine. <laughs> Just fine. We're fine. <laughs> and uh, now we're going to talk about uh, the LEAP organization uh, and their uh, people's bailout. So co-founded by Naomi Klein and Avi Lewis, the LEAP is an organization that aims to, quote, advance system change in the face of the intersecting crises of climate change, racism, and inequality. And their mission is to advance a radically hopeful vision for how we can address climate change by building a more just world while building movement power and popular support to transform it into a lived reality. For the people's bailout uh, and for housing, they advocate uh, immediate housing for all, as the most effective public health and anti-poverty plan, immediate self-determined funding for indigenous communities, many of which were already in a housing catastrophe, a rent and mortgage moratorium, ensuring that no one loses their home because of the pandemic and that their debts do not pile up, and an immediate evictions ban and moratorium on utility payments. On healthcare, they advocate free and accessible healthcare for all, regardless of location or immigration status, guaranteeing personal protective equipment for everyone on the front lines, like healthcare, janitorial, and personal support workers, declaring homeless shelters and harm reduction programs life saving services, and expanding their funding and outreach during the crisis and beyond. Uh, they advocate for releasing incarcerated people with health risks. And, offer, and offering free contraception and removing all barriers to abortions. On work, they advocate giving migrant workers full and equal access to all income support, healthcare, and labor protections, making emergency payments universal, canceling rent and debt, and permanently raising the minimum wage and all forms of social assistance, and giving all nurses, food workers, cleaners, and other workers on the front lines protective equipment, safety, paid sick leave, and danger pay. And uh, in briefly in their uh, recovery phase for fossil fuels, they're arguing that a just transition to a green economy is the only thing that will help us, will uh, allow us to avoid a depression, uh, advocating for massive polluter pays jobs programs to clean up old infrastructure and create jobs around the country. 
Yeah, thanks for that, uh, that that overview. This is one of uh, many responses uh, that different parts of industry and and civil society groups have put together. But it's 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 well, it's currently comprehensive in the parts it has, and then more will be coming. But to you, Lauren. Yeah, no, this is um this we're recording this on Wednesday. If I remember correctly, I believe this website and um and the first three three chapters of the plan launched on Monday. Um, and it's incredibly thorough, especially when you consider how much time the folks at the Leap have had to put this together. Um, like David said, it's it's broken up into six main categories: housing, healthcare, work, transportation, education, and food. And then each of those large sort of buckets are then further broken up into those three categories that, that David had mentioned: relief, recover, and reimagine. And those sort of general categories are sort of what the leap envisions the path out of this COVID crisis is. So we are currently in the first stage, in that relief stage, which is like they describe it as meeting immediate life and death needs of frontline workers and those whose lives have been most upended by COVID. That second chapter is the recovery chapter. It's sort of what we're, we're maybe approaching in the next couple of months, what, what uh, sort of legislation is currently being drafted for, uh, from what we understand. Um, and that sort of covers the sort of stimulus spending. Uh, they describe it that builds scaffolding for a zero carbon full employment economy. That, that's what they're hoping for. That's what they're asking for. And then you have your third phase. You have your reimagined phase. And, and they phrase it, transforming the economy to prioritize safety and stability for all, which in their mind means a global Green New Deal. So again, these three phases sort of cover, run, run the gamut, cover the next uh, months and, and, and years coming out of the COVID crisis. And, and like they say, they envision it as sort of the path to a Green New Deal. Um, yeah, and it's, it's really, really fantastic stuff. It's super uplift, uplifting. Like we said, it's really thorough. It's, it's written in language that's easy for people to understand and, and envision themselves in and see reflected in. So not only is this a helpful tool for, for people writing legislation and for, and for MPs um, and, and policy writers, but it's, it's helpful for people who want to mobilize around something, for people who want something to feel good about and feel hopeful about and to sort of envision a path out of this crisis. Um, so if anybody from the LEAP is listening, props to you guys for putting this together in under in under seven weeks, yeah. right? Like presumably they've they've put this this whole thing together in six weeks, and we know more is to come. Well, what they've put together is really fantastic so far. Yeah, I, I think th- one thing that makes this um, particularly interesting is the fact that it's linked to uh, to grassroots movements, and so you can actually go on the website and go back and see the movements that they sort of were drawing from, and then also it gives you a way, or it gives anyone a way to to engage in a part of the fight, right? Like if you, if you are really struck by a certain part of the part of it, or or if you just want to get involved in some way, you don't know how, it gives you like tangible organizations that are actually working on these different issues that you could support or or join if that if that is your your want. Um, you know, it's funny because I feel like even just like six months ago, even maybe less, we were talking on the show about a crisis of imagination that it felt like people just did not have the ability to think of a living differently and that we were not seeing any actual real, any mainstream conversations around living differently. And, you know, that has changed. Uh, that we are we, what you're now seeing actually is a, is a groundswell of, of, of opportunity and opportunity uh, of, real different kinds of ideas and ways of living. And this is one of them, but there's, there's certainly more to come and certainly more that's existed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like sort of like to, to 
echo that point a little bit more. For for years, we in the environmental movement have heard sort of this this general complaint from the public that like, oh, environmentalists only ever focus on the negative. You always say no, 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 and never offer any tangible solutions or or anything positive to look towards. And like, this is a really fantastic example, similar similar to the Leap Manifesto that came out several years ago that to be honest, isn't talked about much anymore. Um, but this is, a, this is a fantastic example of the kind of solutions that not only the environmental movement, but the entire progressive movement is putting forward. Um, yeah, like, like you said, from what we can see, they, they list the different groups that they either collaborated with or drew inspiration from. And it's, it's something like, like 36 groups already are listed and they super run the gamut. They're, they're from uh, provinces and cities all across North America, not only Canada, for instance, they, they, they reference the Democratic Socialists of America, but they also reference groups like the Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs and Green Jobs Oshawa. So, so they've, they've done their homework here, pulling from actual grassroots communities and, and the activists and the organizers and the people who have this lived experience to inform the recommendations that are being made. Um, and, and it's great to finally be able to, well, not finally, because people have been doing this work for ages, but to be able to point to something and say like, see, we don't just say no, we do say yes to stuff. And this is the stuff we're saying yes to. Um, and I feel like it, it offers kind of a nice counterpoint to, to I know when you and David are going to be talking about um, Michael Moore's new documentary that kind of is bogged down in the negative that like, no, this is, this is what the actual environmental movement, this is what the climate movement, this is what the progressive movement really looks like. And it is rooted in hope and ingenuity and innovation um, and, and better futures for everybody. Uh, Like they say, like they keep, they keep hammering home on this, on this leap website. It's like healthcare for all work for all, um, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because it is actually I hadn't thought about it, but it is somewhat remarkable that the same time you get a movie that comes out basically saying that like environmentalists have are pushing this one or two things that have no real interest. Yada yada. You have these, you know, the, these cases of examples of you know like here in Canada and you there's already that move same moment in the states around a people's bailout or around a green new deal or around these really transformative ideas that that are coming out of the environmental movement you know like the sunrise movement is the reason the green new deal you know got it got 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 enough play it's it's the reason it's in our lexicon and this is the movement that exists today and it's so fascinating that sort of the same time this movie comes out that it sort of really just ignores that entire part of this that these things are galvanizing in a way to really come out and really push to the forefront at this moment um i'm struck i was listening to a friend of a friend of the show actually josh uh sent me a clip uh of different activists and people speaking about what the response should be now and one of the responses which i thought was really interesting and important uh was a bit about how the responses and the principles and the guidelines uh will will be universal but actually the responses need to be still very rooted in in community and in locally and i think that's sort of part of the importance of the fact that the leap does pull from these individual smaller groups is that they're the ones living on the ground in their smaller communities that understand what really would be helpful then and that seems to be very important when you're talking about transformative change because the people will see themselves in it and will understand that oh this is actually a very good idea that addresses my local context which is rare yeah um and 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 i know today we're talking about uh the leaps version uh they've they've branded it the people's bailout but in the coming weeks um 
we, we know that other organizations are working on really similar initiatives, uh, sort of based around um, things like principles and recommendations around, around what they think a just recovery should look like. And, and we'll definitely be talking about those in the coming weeks. So, so though today is really heavy on the leap, um, we'll be branching out a little bit going forward and talking about all the other amazing ways people are, people are offering up fantastic solutions to, to lift us up out of COVID and, I don't know, towards a, a bright, beautiful tomorrow <laughs> that is free of virus and climate change. Not free, but alleviated, I guess. Yes. Music to my starved ears. So as a piece of positive news, to add to all the other wonderful positive news, the University of Oxford, annou Oxford announced earlier this month that it is uh, officially divesting from fossil fuels following student campaigns and protests. And they will be requiring also net zero business plans from any company they are investing in. Yeah, this is one of those things where it's, it's funny that it is positive news, certainly. But as somebody who did engage in fossil fuel divestment organizing in my university and, and undergrad days, this made me really mad. And it's not that I'm mad that Oxford has divested because yes, that's a really positive change that needs to happen. They're such a prominent university and that's genuinely money moving out of the coffers of a fossil fuel industry. But it's, it's, it is almost like they are getting in under the wire. It is almost too little too late because this announcement was made last week in the same week within the same actually i think 24 hours that we found out that oil was negative 37 dollars in the united states so it's like oh like like now you're ready to divest when like all hope is lost in this industry you've you've probably already lost millions if not billions of dollars in endowment monies like like now is the time that you have chosen to divest and it's and it's so yeah, it makes me really mad. It feels like it's such a slap in the face because because this is this is definitely just sour grapes. This is the sour grapes rant of a former fossil fuel divestment organizer who had to like, I remember sitting in rooms with uh, the administrators at my university, specifically the controller and the VP admin. And they said, they're like, don't worry, we're going to divest eventually but that will be when our financial advisors say so, because this is what the market does. The market will naturally pull back from companies that are no longer like worthy of our investment that aren't doing well anymore. So like we'll divest, but it'll be when the market indicates that we should. And it's like for all those universities that haven't divested at this point, it's like, cool, you waited too long. Now you've lost money. Where's your fiscal responsibility now? Like, you didn't have the hubris to listen to your faculty members, to listen to your students, to listen to your researchers and your staff and your professors when they were telling you that these decisions had to be made like before things got bad and now things are bad and now you're left holding your... We are now going to look at uh, the Michael Moore and Jeff Gibbs film that came out recently called Planet of the Humans. So, it's not necessary for us to debunk in detail the various inaccuracies and individual points of misinformation presented by the movie Planet of the Humans by Jeff Gibbs and Michael Moore, as it's already been done thoroughly by so many, for instance, Keitan Joshi and someone named The Solar Nerd. Tom Athanasiu, and uh, my Emily Atkin have also given good critiques for the film, 
and we'll link to all of these pieces on our website. There are others who are pretending that it is an industrial-grade takedown of renewable energy, but much of what it says about solar and wind is either way outdated or straight-up false, and it doesn't even mention tidal, geothermal, hydro, or nuclear. It has a sustained attack on biomass, which is understandable, and it makes green corporatism look silly, which is acceptable too. But it's so outdated in both its critique and its numbers that it's pretty much useless to the green movement today, and makes environmentalism look naive at a time when the movement has just gained international steam precisely by moving beyond the largely middle-class white naivete that had mired it from the beginning. And it has done this over the past few years thanks to a generation of justice-oriented young activists and indigenous organizers whom the movie completely ignores. The most genuinely positive reaction I've seen to the movie is that it perhaps made some viewers understand that privileged people need to consume less and that we can't trust billionaires and corporations to solve climate change, which is fine, and perhaps that's what it's meant to be, uh, a wake-up call for people who haven't been paying attention for a decade, but it could at least mention the real movement, it could at least mention class and racial disparities, it could at least interview some relevant experts, and it certainly shouldn't feature a bunch of comfortable white Americans talking about reducing the human population, or feature as its core philosophy a disempowering apocalyptic sentiment about mortality. And on this kind of apocalypse mongering that many are turning to, I'll quote the late Santee Dakota activist John Trudell, who said in 2012 in an interview with Tamara Spivey, quote, Apocalyptic propaganda is the basis of Western religion. It's a control mechanism by instilling fear. You instill the fear so people won't think clearly. Everything is there to disrupt the creative intelligence so it doesn't flow with clarity and coherence. So fearing the apocalyptic is just a mining tool they've been using since they came up with the concept of a male dominator god. Yeah, so we went back and forth as to whether to cover this film at all be honest, uh, ultimately deciding that we should on the basis of a couple of asks to talk about it uh, from from different people uh, and from the fact that clearly some folks were taking the work at face value. Uh, but the question became how to make sure that the response is not just a list of exasperated, angry rants about the film's laundry list of inaccuracies. To clear them up would likely require more than the hundred minutes the film runs for. And so instead, I'll focus on two quick things. Uh, the first is the film's baffling obsession with biomass, which the film spends an exorbitant amount of time arguing is the darling of the green movement, and it is a juggernaut that cannot be stopped. You know, it, it spends the time comparing it to wind and solar, which they routinely belittle and as basically useless. But if you compare uh, their, the, their contribution to the energy grid, you see that biomass makes up just 1.8% of the United States' energy mix in comparison to wind and solar, which make up 9.1%. If only the useless wind and solar could be generating one-fifth of the power it currently does, but I digress. The film is primarily focused... The film is primarily frustrating due to its use of a common internet trolling tactic to, to, to throw so many insinuations and false statements that to respond would take so long that people just stop listening. But I think that that's what gets me the most. But I think what gets me the most is that it actually doesn't explain anything. Even, if, even in its takedowns, you don't actually learn why something is the way it is. 
Should we be concerned about the rare metal requirements for batteries? Yes, definitely. Does this film provide any context or information about the colonial history of mining companies doing this work, or does it consider the many alternative non-chemical forms of grid storage that exist? Of course not. Should we be skeptical when a billionaire who made money off air travel says he's going to donate billions of dollars to climate research? Yes. But we already read a dramatically more useful takedown of Richard Branson in This Changes Everything, which Naomi Klein published in 2014, which ironically was still more recent than most of the footage used in this documentary. The most charitable viewing of this movie is that it's a case against capitalism as a response to climate action, that it's a movie pushing degrowth. Now, my own personal take is that it's a myopic Malthusian mess that abdicates all responsibility to answer or even engage with the questions it poses, but let's give it the benefit of the doubt. That it's a movie about degrowth. That's great. I'm very much here for a conversation about the types of efforts necessary to allow everyone to work less, live in community more, and drastically rein in the cult of consumption that has taken over the Western world. But this movie does not engage in any of those. It focuses on population, it vilifies, vilifies energy systems that we'd still need to power our shrinking economy, and it leaves you no better off than when you began. So let's leave Jeff and company where they appear to want to live. 1900s London, where the world population is just over 1 billion, you couldn't run a single solar panel even if you wanted to because of the coal-based smog, and just like this documentary, everyone you'd end up talking to is white. But that is not where we actually are. Where we are is in a world hurtling towards environmental catastrophe, where we, where we need everyone with an idea to pitch in and do their best with what they have, and towards that all-hands-on-deck goal, this movie is catastrophically unhelpful. If you haven't watched it, don't. If, you, if someone else has watched it, send them one of the many different links that we'll post on the website about why it's not worth your time. Let's move on and start finding other conversations to have. And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our radio syndicates across country, or maybe on the podcast, which you can find at greenmajority.ca. Uh, I am here, uh, seven host editor with Emma McIntosh. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good as always. You wrote a piece recently talking, explaining actually what, what negative oil prices even means, because it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to people, as you can imagine, or at least not to me inherently like the idea that you would give me money to take a barrel of oil. But uh, can you explain what negative oil prices mean? Gladly. It's actually like a pretty simple concept, which is that you have to pay people to take the oil away, um, which is kind of like a mind-blowing thing to say, even though that was one sentence, that like <laughs> oil, this commodity that is usually very valuable, or at least has historically been very valuable, you now have to pay people who want to buy it. Right. And, and, and uh, why? Why is a, a more complicated question. Um, Jason Kenney has kind of referred to this like triple threat or um, the, this like trio of horrible things happening at once. So the first thing, which is split into two categories, is the COVID-19 pandemic. So we're all sitting in our houses right now. True. I don't true. think anyone I know has driven their car more than once in the past like month. Um, and overall demand for petroleum products has just like dropped to very little <laughs> to, to put it in short. And so 
with this demand going down, um, it you know makes sense that prices would drop. But then you add in uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia decided now was a good time for a price war. So both of them have been flooding the market with really, really cheap oil. And what's happened is that there's actually nowhere to put it anymore. There are like these gigantic tank farms where the oil is just stored and people with physical oil just are running out of places to store it. There are tankers floating off of the coast of California that are just full and full to the top of barrels of oil. And they're just, people are paying to leave them there floating because they have nowhere else to put this stuff. And so we, we really saw this get bad um, over the last week because, um, so this is like a kind of an annoying thing about the way that oil is traded, but it, it's done in these things called futures contracts. Basically, it, it's a contract to have oil delivered at a certain date. Um, but you, you make this contract in, I don't know, January, and uh, you can trade these things around dozens of times before the actual deadline passes where you're gonna be the guy who's stuck with that oil. Um, and so people are trading these things, la da da, and now all this stuff has happened, COVID-19 is going on, the price war is happening, people are running out of places to put oil. These guys are like traders in New York City. They don't know where to store a barrel of oil. No one wants to be the one who gets stuck with a delivery of like a couple hundred thousand barrels, right? Like. No one knows what to do with that. So everybody is trying to dump their futures contracts and not be stuck holding the bag at the end of the day. And so that deadline um, was last week. And that's why oil went negative was because mm. people were so desperate to get rid of it that they were paying people to take it. Right. Um, so this is basically was like a game of monetary hot potato with oil futures. And... And normally, there'd be enough demand that you could sell these off to people who actually need it. But because of all that's happened, suddenly that was not possible. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I did read a little bit about how, how most commonly these oil trade futures that are being traded around by, these, by, by like New York Stock Exchange people, it normally always just comes out eventually by just then selling it off to somebody else again. And so for them, it's just gambling you know it's it's like it's it's trading on 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 these equities and stuff like that whereas they never actually ever own any of them right right exactly exactly and then the other aspect to it is that like when we're talking about this like oil price we're talking about a benchmark um and so i feel like benchmark is one of those words that people throw around and no one ever explains it so just for the sake of doing that uh, the benchmark is like uh, just kind of a way to distinguish between different types of oil for traders. So like the Canadian benchmark is Western Canadian select. And so that's like going to be oil probably from Alberta. And so you kind of have a sense of like where it's coming from and generally what the quality will be. Um, and so that's just kind of like a, um, a marker in the physical world. Like if you're calling up a, a producer directly or a, a refinery directly, that's a whole nother game. Like you're not necessarily paying that benchmark price in the physical oil world. It can get really ugly, really fast. And so you might be looking at stuff that's way lower. So it, it, it gets messy. Right. Right. Yeah. These are all, and it sort of does go to show a little bit just how made up in some ways, so much of the actual commodities trading is 
because it, yeah. you know, because no one ever actually interacts with the stuff. It's all done on, you know, these benchmarks or, uh, or futures and, and neither are actually a barrel of oil. Like neither the future is a future barrel of oil and the benchmark isn't actually an actual barrel of oil. And yet all of this is getting traded in these massive, these, like these, these, these incredibly complex, um, schemes really. You know, I've also just realized one other disclaimer we should put out there. Yeah. Um, so it was actually the, one of the main American benchmarks that went negative, not uh, Canadian. Right. So um, a lot of the time people talk about WTI, that's mm. West Texas Intermediate. And so that's the benchmark of oil from West Texas. Um, so Canadian oil was like, you know, still like hovering above zero last time right. I checked. Right. Like a, like, a, like a dollar or two. Yeah. Yeah. Or like it's kind of just been hovering below 10, which is catastrophic but it's definitely a weird thing catastrophic for people in the oil business it's a weird thing to look at it and see it at eight dollars and be like oh wow it's up today <laughs> um, yeah 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 but uh, yeah so just because it wasn't negative doesn't mean it's great right um, yeah exactly i think my understanding is it needs to be around 20 ish for it to be like a relatively healthy no 20 20 is also fairly catastrophic oh wow okay well that's great yeah like <laughs> if you talk about like Remember in 2015 when yeah. oil prices tanked and it was a huge crisis? So that was like $30 a barrel of oil. That's fun. Um, perspective, like about a, a month ago, you might have seen all these articles going around. CBC described it as uh, being worth less than a barrel of monkeys. <laughs> the children's game. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, my comparison was a Big Mac. Um, mm. And we're talking about just the burger, not the combo, just for clarity. So actually, when Jason Kenney did his recent budget, he was um, basing that off of $58 a barrel for West Texas Intermediate. And so if West Texas Intermediate is negative uh, 37 US dollars, that <laughs> hurts a lot. I yeah, think. That's, that's not great. That's not, not beneficial for, for us so much. Yeah, that um, was a, an optimistic estimate at the time anyways. Like, I, I don't think it will was much above $40 a barrel at any point in the last couple of years. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had heard, I had heard that. Um, uh, so um, do we expect this to stop? Like, is there, to me, there does not appear to be real. Like I, I'd heard there were some conversations around some deal about slashing oil production that might help a little bit, but like, what's the read is is are we sort of expected that the oil will be sort of super cheap for the next year um i think one of the big problems right now is that no one really knows like opec is trying to do some stuff um it's not clear how much that will really help like even if they cut production which you know some some companies are cutting production voluntarily already because they have nowhere to put it um, there's still not going to be an increase in demand until company or not companies until countries, uh, start kind of coming back online as people who talk about oil trading say when, when people start wanting oil again, when they start like driving their cars, when they restart manufacturing, when they start using these industries that require a lot of petroleum until that happens, no one's buying oil and there's still nowhere to put it. So I mean, no one really knows. Like, when is the pandemic going to end, right? Like, there's not really an easy answer, which I think is part of the problem that oil-producing right. countries are now facing. Right, right. Yeah, it's not like, 
you can pre- prepare a ramp up in two months, but if it's if we aren't doing anything still, then you're just spinning your wheels. Right, exactly. And like, not that we need to add more layers of complication to this or anything, but it's like oil production facilities are not designed to like shut down. Like they don't right. do that. Um, when they have to shut down for like maintenance or something, that's pretty risky in terms of like, everything working properly like oh, wow. that's usually the time when like upsets happen or like things leak or are released because because they're so because the oil is being pushed out of the ground and that actually do you need that to carry forward basically um you know i i definitely don't know enough about like right. the machinery to know but <laughs> i i've just i've been told by people who are so much smarter than me that that's a risky time and we've seen that like um I, we did this investigation a couple of years ago into um, chemical releases from a bunch of refineries and plants in Sarnia. And one of the things that we tracked when looking through just like pages and pages of documents about these releases was whether or not the plant was restarting at the time, because that increases the risk. Mm. Um, yeah. So it's just one of those things. So like all that to say, it's not like we can just um, shut down the oil sands and that's like an easy thing to do either. Right. Like you can't just flick a switch and then shut it off and just wait for it to be over so they can start producing again, you know? Yeah, right. That makes sense. Um, yeah. And then, man, oil. It's, there's, there's so many things about the oil industry that are, uh, that are amazing. Um, and amazing not in a positive sense, just more of in a, like a, more of in an awe sense, perhaps. Uh, you know, let alone, you know, given the, given the fact that how much oil companies are currently invested, there was, I was reading some things about how cheap it would be to buy, uh, to buy every, I believe it was that you could buy every single United States oil company for less than the money that they put in, in the bailout. Uh, like they could have just bought straight up every single listed oil company in the S and P 500, I believe it was as American uh, for less than the money they spent in their first wave of, of COVID response in the States. Oh man, I should, I should look at that. That's interesting. Cause, um, like oil companies worth is based so much on like the value of their reserves, right? The, the value of, of what they have in the ground. Um, and if oil costs negative $37, then and what are they worth? Reserves yeah. are worth negative millions billions so like well, especially if they can't stop pumping it out like if like if they're literally gonna keep like if, they can't, if it's dangerous to stop pumping it out and they have no place to put it you're stuck in this weird loop yeah yeah basically the the fix is the the, the fix if, as much as there is one is you just slow production to a crawl have a skeleton crew working and hope that you can ride it out with the help of a government bailout um yeah. But I mean, and, and stop me if I'm <laughs> ripping on questions you wanted to ask. But one important thing is that like, uh, th- there are a lot of like layers to the, the financial crisis that these companies are facing. And that does trickle down to the workers, like the people who are going to suffer are going to be um, the people who are in the least position to be able to weather it. And so um, the federal government that announced this aid package for the oil and gas industry um, Part of that was 1.7 billion to help fund the cleanup of um, of inactive wells and orphan wells, which I think we talked about before. Yeah. Um, and so Husky Energy, for example, so one of the big Canadian companies or 
companies based in Canada, um, has actually just cut 1.7 billion from its 2020 budget since like mid-March. So that's one company. Um, right. And so it, it's it's hard to imagine how much money would have to be thrown at this for right. it to actually save people. And it's unclear if that would even make a difference. And, and, and you may not know the answer to this question. And so if not, no worries. Um, but do you, was the money that, that the government put in place, was that idea that the, they would be paying the oil companies to do this, that the workers themselves, I, I presume you would need, part of that idea was that you'd employ the workers who might not have jobs in the actual pulling out of oil to be repurposed for this purpose. Right. It, it's been kind of light on the details. Um, okay. like, so like they've allocated the money, and it seems like the provinces are going to be the ones that actually like roll out the programs tailored right. to, to their province. And so Alberta's program like didn't have a whole lot of detail. Um, so like we thought it was going to be loans. All of a sudden, it's grants. Um, that means that the companies don't have to pay it back. And um, the money appears, at least for the first round, to be going to oil field services companies. So these are like companies that are contractors hired by the big oil companies to do stuff. And so these are the people with the expertise to clean up wells. And those folks have been suffering. Those companies are like a, a big backbone of rural Alberta economically. But um, essentially, like some of these big oil companies are going to have 100% of the money needed to clean up certain well sites just tossed to the... Um, the people who are going to clean it up. So it just gets done for free on their end. Right, right. Okay. And it depends on who's able to pay and how much. Right. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it's not it's not surprising that there's still any the details given the, you know, given everything's going on. But yeah, I was just sort of curious because of, because of the way that, because of this, well, because of the response, there's really been this sort of larger push to be like, we sh the response should be helping the workers and not the companies. And so I was curious if this was sort of a way to try to direct money towards the workers themselves. Uh, but it makes sense that the skills are somewhat different. And so you're, you're, you are supporting some of the people, but not perhaps the, the entire workforce. Right, right. It does help the companies too, though. Um, if that well gets cleaned up, that's one liability that they can just erase from their balance sheet, right? Right. Right. Um, so like say costs uh, $30,000 to do work on one well, um, that's 30 K that you can just wipe from books. Right. I think that's a pretty low number though. I don't think that's actually what it costs. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that's, <laughs> let's just, let's just hope it is. Let's just hope it's that cheap, but I think that's probably right. Um, so speaking of Alberta, um, uh, like how, you know, we're slightly on terror saying, how has Alberta been responding with this fallout, to this fallout? Like, Kenny seems to be responding by doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on these, on these investments. You know, I think, I believe you were on the show last, last fall when we talked about AIMCO and, and their pension, taking up the teacher's pension fund um, and investing it directly in oil. And clearly right now that does not look like a great move. And yet it does seem like the response has been more investment in oil and more money going towards say the $7.5 $7 million loan to, or loan guarantees uh, to Trans Mountain, not Trans Mountain, sorry, Keystone, um, and, and some of that stuff. But like, what's their response been? Um, yeah, so overall, I think you're right. Alberta has been doubling down on oil and gas as the, the ticket to, um, to the good life again, you know? Um, so at the same time as the government invested in Keystone, they also 
laid off a whole bunch of teachers, which is something they promised they wouldn't do. And they'd also um, made some cuts to healthcare. Uh, I actually, I don't know if I should say that. Um, I don't know. Like I haven't been fully in on the Alberta politics stuff, but right. I know that doctors have been really frustrated with um, some of the things that the government had started to move on before this crisis and is right. continuing and, to move on with and, rural healthcare. Right. I saw that they had like that they had backed down on some of them. They had they had released a, they had released like a. I, I saw a the health minister talking about how going on about how like we've canceled these plans. And we've not delayed them. We have canceled them. Right, right. Uh, exactly. Um, and so, like, it's it's difficult. Um, they certainly seem to be following this belief. But I, I talked to this really smart um, political scientist from the, the University of Calgary named Melanie Thomas, um, who makes my writing a lot smarter than my doctor. <laughs> and she kind of, her thinking on this is that Kenny's government has kind of painted themselves into a corner. So they were elected on this promise to like, kind of return Alberta to the glory days um, when oil and gas was the focus and the money never stopped flowing until the next bus, but then it always starts flowing again. Um, and so a lot of their base are people from like the junior oil and gas firms um, and medium sized oil and gas firms. And those people want to see that return to great oil happen, right? And now that they've kind of done all these things, they've invested in Keystone, they've uh, paid $30 million for this Alberta war room. Um, if they back down on any piece of that philosophy, a whole bunch of things start looking like they were a waste of time and a waste of resources. Right. Like a, a lot of them, you know? And so it's like a house of cards. You can't, you can't, just start yanking pieces out or walking them back because then the whole ethos starts to fall apart. And so that's um, a difficult scenario to be in. And a lot of people feel like that doesn't exactly serve the people of Alberta well. Um, we've talked about it on the show before, long-term forecasts that show energy demand going up over the next few decades are also forecasts that show catastrophic levels of global warming. So <laughs> we know that we're either going to die in a fiery inferno <laughs> or we're going to get off oil and not preparing people for that reality and not planning for that reality and planning a good transition is, is basically like setting people up for what um you know workers in cod went through right and um that's like a, a total collapse with no safety net so yeah um which is interesting because like interesting about the fact that COVID happened this time is that it's actually created sort of like, because even before COVID hit, the, the price war had begun. And so mm -hmm. we were going to see a pretty big drop in, 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 in difficulties even before this, that we were talking about this right before the, before everything else hit. And, and now it's almost as if because the problem is, is now global, the response actually is interesting is, is actually is actually providing maybe more safety nets to some people that would not have been there right like i i, I would be very surprised if 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 it had just been uh the 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 price war that had led to everyone losing their jobs in the in the in the oil patch if that had led to say something like the canadian emergency response benefit you know like i, I can't imagine that the canadian government would be like okay everyone in alberta who lost their job because of this one price thing is now going to get two thousand dollars a month for the next three months does not seem like a normal response but because it's global there's actually been maybe more of a safety net built because it's everyone 
Right, exactly. We're seeing like this very historic injection of public money. Um, and a lot of green advocates have pointed out that that's a pretty big opportunity to decide what we want to support and what we want to phase out, right? Um, a good opportunity to invest in future industries that have the potential to create jobs in the future. Um, and one thing that we know about oil, unfortunately, is that it is not a future job creating industry. Um, production has gone up in the oil patch over the last couple of years. People's, people's jobs have just continuously declined because of automation. So a lot of what's lost isn't coming back. And when we talk about a couple thousand jobs being created by a pipeline, that's really kind of not really denting <laughs> the overall deficit of jobs there. So it's tricky. Yeah. Uh, um, it's even trickier. Sorry. When we talk about the Alberta deficit, which is set to triple now. Right. Um, yeah. And it's a... Uh, it's weird to look back on that budget from February and that $58 a barrel prediction because things have changed so fast. But I yeah. think it, it would be interesting to see how this would go if there was a change of heart at play. Um, so, which does lead to the last question sort of that I, that I, that I had, um, unless you have other thoughts of other things that you were looking and reporting to that we should just think about. But, um, you you posted a, a a tweet on Friday of a of a reporter actually deigning to ask Kenny about the concept uh, of 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 moving on uh, from oil um, uh, and and he had a particularly kind of ridiculous response but like you you sort of covered it so can you just tell that story? Sure. Um... So what happened is uh, this reporter named Tom Ross from a radio station in Calgary. Um, asked the premier, you know, oil prices are tanking right now. Um, when do you think this merits a discussion about energy transition? And when you are meeting with officials in the US about coordinating on a strategy, which is something the premier has been talking about a lot, are you talking with them about a Green New Deal? Um, and Kenny, like, kind of went off. It was, it was calm, you know, some people have characterized it as a temper tantrum, and I don't think that's quite fair. Um, but basically the, the premier started, you know, talking about the Green New Deal. He called it an ideological scheme. He called it pie in the sky. Um, and then he, this was, this is where it got weird. He accused this reporter of being from the Taiyi. Now, I, I'm sure I don't need to tell anyone who listens to Green Majority what the Taiyi is, but it's a, it's an independent news outlet in Vancouver. Um, and that morning <laughs> it had published a piece very critical of Jason Kenney, coincidentally. Um, and he said, you know, this, this kind of question from a Calgary-based reporter to Calgary-based news outlet throws me for a loop, which is a weird thing to say, um, implying that someone from Alberta can't question this stuff is, is kind of weird, kind of alarming, um, pretty democratically corrosive. And then after finishing his answer, um, which, you know, he also pointed to like these projections of increased oil demand. He pointed to, you know, the fact that Alberta oil is clean and ethical. And um, then he kind of abruptly leaves. He's, he says, uh, Christine, which who's his press secretary, he says, Christine, and I have a call with the premier. I have to go. <laughs> and then he just walks out. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't like he had a tantrum and then he stormed out, like throwing stuff on the ground or anything, but it was abrupt. Um, 
a lot of people certainly didn't feel like he really had to leave at that moment. And um, there was kind of like an, an awkward pause while his energy and environment ministers were like, okay, uh, we'll answer more questions now. Um, and, and the whole thing is bizarre. For the record, Tom Ross is a Calgary born and raised guy. Like he, he's right. there, you know, it, it's just a weird criticism. Wait, and, it, does sort of, it does sort of speak similarly to this concept that, you know, being against an industry or not being against, but considering the end of an industry in a, in a place, you know, is, is somehow anti, is unpatriotic or on, you know, on like the idea that the industry that, that rules your area should not be questioned. You know, you, you can see that in other places um, where, where, where the, the hold of the industry is so strong that questioning the industry is almost questioning the existence of the, of the whole operation. Right. And what was so interesting to me about that moment is that he kind of said the quiet part loud. Right. A lot of this stuff is implied. Like Melanie Thomas, the political scientist I was talking about, Kenny went after her because when she was like a university student, I believe she ran for office, um, not with the Conservative Party. And he kind of implied that her ideas were wrong um, because she had done that or because she was critical of him. Um, and it's kind of been a pattern with the Kenny government. Um, we've seen that with the way that the Alberta energy regulator has been restructured. There's a lot of industry voices and there's not a lot of environmental oversight. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's not often that politicians are that honest about what they really think. And so it was a wild moment to watch. Um, but I also think it was like indicative of a bigger problem, which is that if no one in the government is willing to consider the idea that there might be a future without oil, right. a lot of people are gonna get screwed, completely screwed. Yeah, yeah, fair. Um, uh, so uh, thank you so much. Um, if, is there anything you're following right now or doing that you, that you wanna be like, pay attention to this thing that's happening um, or, or shall, we, shall we call it there? I think um, just read environmental news right now. I know all of you are. <laughs> but um, we've seen a lot of jurisdictions take this opportunity to relax environmental law. Um, we've seen Alberta do it. Ontario's done it. The U.S. has done it. Now is the time to be watching more than ever. And I know I am. So Amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much, Emma. Uh, Emma McIntosh from uh, the National Observer. Um, where can they, if they want to find your work, uh, where can they find your work? Uh, nationalobserver.com is a great spot. And you can also... Follow me on Twitter if you want. It's Emma MCI. Amazing. Awesome. Thanks for having Thanks, me. Emma. Have a wonderful day. Uh, and we'll have you on real soon.